So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Uh, my name's Nate. I'm here with my good friend David. I really look forward to these weekly conversations, especially on weeks like this when we've got uh, such a fabulous guest waiting in the yeah. green room. Yeah, we do indeed. It's a coup. Yeah. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, I am sitting in the middle, David. I'm in the middle of, of chaos. But I don't know that you can see it. I've managed to keep it out of the frame of my camera. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, <laughs> we're packing up. We're trying to pack up, unpack, declutter, pack up a house that we've been in, you know, a town we've been here for 22 years. Yeah. Uh, I need to get it all done in five days to get the house ready to sell. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, talked with the contractor yesterday uh, who's working on the house we plan to move into, and it's way behind schedule so we have the prospect of being homeless for a few months uh, uh, yeah but in the meanwhile i've got to tell you david as ali and i dig through closets and you know unpack bookshelves it's amazing how much stuff we've managed to put in this house over the years <laughs> it's amazing and, what and, can fit in a house yeah yeah and sometimes you know as we take it out we look at each other and and you know Either out loud or silently, we ask the question, who the hell bought this and why? Yeah. <laughs> or where did this come from? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, some yeah. of it's easy to get some of it's easy to get rid of. Some of it we have an emotional attachment to it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, Allie will look at me and say, You're keeping that? And I will say, <laughs> Yes, of course I'm keeping that. Uh, and she more often, I will say to Allie, you're keeping that? And I don't understand. But So we have kind of these different, you know, uh, emotional attachments to stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, then uh, yeah, it's like we're walking back through more than 20 years as we unpack this house. It's really quite an experience. Oh, you? yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and memorabilia and what do I still keep and what do I still take? And, you know, yeah. um, golly. Yeah. You've, you've been through that moving from, uh, you know, uh, oh, yeah. from that nice suburban house you have to the, you know, <laughs> you have progressively <laughs> downsized into smaller and smaller spaces. Right? I have. I, I've joked. It's kind of a morbid joke, but I've joked with my daughter that when I die, there is really not going to be a big giving away because <laughs> <laughs> we've done that already. Yeah. So I have to ask this. Has your life gotten bigger as uh, your, I don't know, 
your footprint has gotten smaller? Yeah, it really has because it's made room for other things, even though maybe not material always, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I had a, it's this kind of funny analogy. I, years and years ago, we had a, a designer help us redo some stuff in our house. It was pretty, you know, stuck in the uh, 80s yeah. when it was built. And we went to upgrade it. We went through all these different things. And when she came back with helping us pick out uh, furniture and pieces that we were going to get rid of and pictures that we no longer wanted on the walls and all that kind of stuff, uh, she left all these big gaping holes, these big gaps, yeah. you know, nothing yeah. on that wall, no mirror in the hallway. We haven't found the right one yet. You know, all these kind yeah. of things, the entry table wasn't there anymore because we didn't have the right one. And I was like, well, couldn't we just put the one we had back until we find the right one, you know, like the right picture yeah. back and put the right until we find the right stuff. And she said, no, because she said, if you fill the hole, you will never pursue the right thing. And I thought, Ooh. that's a life thing for me. You know, I, it, you don't make room for the new stuff because you're hanging on to this space filler that you don't really like, yeah. that doesn't serve you, really. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. you're But it's filling a space. It's filling a hole. So when I got rid of crap and I moved... Um, I kept my art that was that I that I liked. I kept certain things, you know, but mm-hmm. um, but the things I have now are the things that mean something to me and that work for me. And if it didn't, I didn't have room for it, you know. And, wow. Uh, so just had to wow. go. But yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so that's, you know, it it feels painful to let go of this stuff. Some of it. Mm hmm. We've had to make some hard choices, and we've also kicked the can down the road on uh, some of this stuff. <laughs> Is that like a storage unit or something like that? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> let's not get started on storage units. But <laughs> unlike you, we're not moving to a smaller place. Right. We're actually going to gain some square footage in yeah. in the move. Yeah. So we're not under probably as much pressure to. Uh, simplify our life and get rid of extraneous things as might truly be helpful to us. Uh, but yeah. Um, but still, so it's, it's painful and yet it is, uh, are you hearing that buzzing in the background, David? A little bit, but I, I think we're okay. okay. <laughs> we have workmen. We have it's, workmen at the house. It's a sign of disruption. Uh, <laughs> we're making all kinds of last minute repairs. You know, the stuff that we could live with that we know the new owners uh-huh. are not going to want to live with. Yeah. Right. Now repairs that should have been made 10 years ago, we're making now and the, you know, in the last week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. And yeah. I got to tell you as excited as we are about the move, um, it looks as though, you know, the next, five or six months are going to be chaotic. Mm-hmm. Even when we finally succeed in moving into the new place. Mm-hmm. I do remember from the last time we moved uh, in our early, early years of our marriage, we moved all the time. We moved practically every year. We lived in six States, our first six years of marriage and, oh my gosh. you know, moved from place to place, all yeah. rental stuff. And, and I remember uh, the pain of unpacking, which was worse than the pain of packing. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, what's what's impelling us to move is that we know that long term, 
there's going to be a new level of serenity and security and peace and mm-hmm. stability. Mm-hmm. We're going to find a new normal. But between right. here and there, yeah, there's going to be some disruption, mm-hmm. some pain, some unpredictability. Anxious it's, uh, feelings, anxiety. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Which I suppose has some parallels in recovery. I think it probably does. <laughs> I yeah. tell people every day, this is going to be the most disruptive, best thing you'll do. You know? Yeah. Uh, it is. It's going to be disruptive for a little bit. Um, we're going to have yeah. to have to not feel comfortable for a little bit, maybe. But mm-hmm. um, in the end, it's going to be something where you're, the appreciation we have for the rest of our lives uh, and the other pieces of our lives is exponentially greater than yeah. when we um, were just trying to use to medicate the the lack of uh, euphoria that we thought we were experiencing, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we have a guest coming up who is going to speak very authoritatively and eloquently to precisely this dilemma uh, and is going to connect it directly to addiction and recovery. She has a tremendous amount of expertise. Uh, uh, you're absolutely, you're, you're going to, this is one of those that you're going to save and you're going to, and you're going to replay and you're going to forward to other people. I'm certain stay with us. We will be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Oh, this is a five-star day, David. It uh, is. We have with us, we have with us uh, a, a world-renowned expert, a best-selling author, who has uh, a, a lot of wisdom to share. Uh, on the subject of recovery, especially the neuroscience, the neurochemical basis, and then practical steps for how we can deal with behavior change. You want to introduce our guest, David? I will. Uh, This is Dr. Anna Lemke, and Dr. Lemke comes to us from Stanford University School of Medicine, where she's a, a professor of psychiatry, but she's also the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. Uh, that's a mouthful, mm. but uh, I heard Dr. Limke on Terry Gross on uh, NPR. For those of our audience that uh, are NPR fans, I heard her on Terry Gross, and she was talking about this great book that she'd written called The Dopamine Nation, which I had not um, read. And I began to listen, and I began to think, God, that explains about 90% of what I deal with with the people that come to see me. And uh, I thought, you know, she's on Terry Gross, so she's not going to come on our podcast, but what the hell, I'll, I'll send an email. <laughs> and lo and behold, she replied. And so, Dr. Linke, welcome to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. We are honored and happy uh, to have you with us. Well, thank you for that very kind and warm introduction. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm always happy to talk to folks in the recovery community. Yeah. Oh, and I wanted to mention she was in the um, the documentary, uh, The Social Dilemma, that um, oh, yeah. we mm-hmm. referenced many times uh, with other guests as well. And uh, so I didn't want to let that get by me either. But uh, yeah, this is this is going to be a good conversation. So, Dr. Lemke, I wonder if you could kind of open by describing for us the situation in which we find ourselves right now as a modern society. 
with uh, so many sources of stimulation, so many ways to run from pain, and yet depression seems to be, if anything, increasing. Want to expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah, happy to. So that's the central hypothesis of my book, Dopamine Nation, that the reason that we're seeing increased rates of depression, anxiety, um, and other psychological problems, especially in rich nations, is because we have too much of the wrong kind of stuff and too little friction, essentially, in our lives. Mm-hmm. And that really goes back to our primitive brains, our evolutionary wiring. You know, we were really evolved over millions of years to approach pleasure and avoid pain. And that's a great thing in a world of scarcity and ever present danger. But the problem is, we now live in this world of overwhelming abundance, which is a mismatch for our primitive brains. So we really need to start to think collectively about how we're going to live fulfilling lives in a world that we really weren't designed for, but that we paradoxically created. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I love that. Friction. Friction. (laughs) Let's just jump into the deep end right off the bat. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, can you give us kind of a, a, a look inside the skull at kind of how pain and pleasure are processed uh, and uh, and how that contributes to the dilemma we currently face? Yeah. So one of the most remarkable findings in neuroscience in the last half century is that pain and pleasure are co-located in the brain. So what that means is that the same part of the brain that processes pleasure also processes pain And pleasure and pain work like opposite sides of a balance. So Mm -hmm. if we do something pleasurable, our balance tips to the side of pleasure, like a teeter-totter in a playground, and we release a chemical called dopamine in in a part of our brain called the reward pathway. But one of the overarching rules governing this pleasure-pain balance is that it doesn't want to be deviated from neutrality. It will work very hard to restore a level balance or what scientists call homeostasis. So as Mm -hmm. soon as I, let's say, eat a piece of chocolate, get a release of dopamine, then my brain works very hard to downregulate my dopamine receptors and my own dopamine transmission. But importantly, it doesn't just downregulate levels back to baseline tonic levels of dopamine. It actually decreases dopamine below baseline. So I go into a little mini dopamine deficit state. And one way to imagine this is that there are these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance. So they stay on until it's tipped an equal amount to the side of pain until getting off and until homeostasis is restored. So in other words, for every pleasure, we pay the price of pain. And sometimes it's outside of conscious awareness and sometimes it's obvious, it's the hangover or the come down. But essentially, the way that the brain restores and maintains homeostasis is to tip to the opposite side of whatever the initial stimulus was. And when we think about what happens in the brain as people become addicted, essentially what they're doing is they're repeating ingestion of that pleasurable substance or behavior over and over again. So they essentially go to war with their neuroadaptation gremlins. They end up with so many gremlins on the pain side of the balance that it could fill this whole room. And they get to a point where they need more and more to get the same effect or more potent forms. Now they're using their drug not to feel good, but just to level the balance and feel normal. 
-hmm. everything else kind of loses its appeal. There's a kind of focused attention on just using that drug or that behavior. And importantly, when we're not using our drug of choice, our balance is tipped to the side of pain. And we're walking around experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance or behavior, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, Mm -hmm. and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use otherwise known as cravings. Mm -hmm. So when I think about that from a sociological, evolutionary, and historical perspective, what I think has happened to us individually and collectively is that we're surrounded by so many substances and behaviors that release so much dopamine in our brains that essentially we're constantly trying to adapt to that bombardment of dopamine by downregulating our own dopamine receptors and transmission. So we're all kind of walking around in this dopamine deficit state, which is created by the constant exposure to and ingestion of highly reinforcing drugs and behavior, which are nearly ubiquitous in the modern age. Yeah. Wow. Well, Dr. Linke, I have um, a private practice where I do recovery coaching. And I don't want to say every single person that comes through, but I'm going to say 99%. Start out the, the first session they come with, I am so anxious. I am so depressed. I can't sleep unless I drink. I can't wake up unless I do. I can't function unless I X, Y, or Z because of anxiety. Um, It's not the um, euphoria that people are, you know, experiencing that I watch people struggle with. It's the, um, and and the misconception that their families have, that it is the euphoria that they're just constantly seeking. But these folks are so, um, and all of us, myself included, I mean, we, we deal with anxiety to a point that, um, that I'm not, I'm not sure any of us can, can articulate. So, so is this just, is every, just every human being walking the earth here, um, just completely riddled with anxiety? Is that just the reality of our age or how do we, how do we push back with that? Wow. That's great. So a couple things to unpack there. First of all, I think that it's important to conceptualize anxiety as a form of energy. And if that energy is properly channeled, it can be really advantageous. We certainly would not want to have no anxiety. If we had no anxiety, we'd never get up off the couch or do anything at all or Mm -hmm. prepare for tomorrow in any way. Mm -hmm. But obviously, too much anxiety is paralyzing. Furthermore, what I think is really important for people who struggle with compulsive overconsumption, which as you point out, is practically all of us now, um, is that what feels in the moment like we are alleviating anxiety, and in fact is an alleviation in the moment of anxiety by turning to feel-good drugs and behavior, mm-hmm. is actually paradoxically causing us more anxiety. And again, mm-hmm. that's because to compensate for that influx of dopamine, our brains are have to downregulate our own dopamine production and transmission, including our other feel-good neurotransmitters like serotonin, norepinephrine. And so we get into this vicious cycle where we're constantly feeling like the substance or behavior is medicating us and relieving anxiety, but actually in many ways it's the origin or the starting place for our anxiety. Mm. So for specifically your patients in recovery who come in very anxious, you know, I, the first thing I tell them is, I know it feels like your drug 
helps you, but really it's probably one of the main drivers of your anxiety. And if you can just stop for long enough to get out of that vicious cycle and allow your own re-regulating homeostatic mechanisms to upregulate, you will feel better. And it's not that your anxiety will go away completely, because I think this is also important. We have to kind of change people's expectations. Our culture teaches us that if we have any anxiety, depression, distress, boredom, that something's wrong with us, with our brains, with our lives, with our spouses, with our jobs. And the truth of the matter is that life is full of everyday anxiety and suffering and dysphoria. And if you think you're the only one walking around feeling that way, then you you're, you don't appreciate you know how much all of us are on every single day kind of going well here here we go again you know mm-hmm. trying to make the best of a rough situation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know whether or not you're you're struggling with addiction or just you know the your average person mm-hmm. the other thing that I would say and this gets back to what we were talking about when we first started is that I think we are really designed for a world of more friction. Um, We really aren't designed for things to be so easy. And so one of the things to do, in addition to avoiding highly reinforcing instant gratification, drugs and behavior, is to actually seek out friction, seek out challenge, seek out literal pain in our lives. What we need to do is press on that pain side of the balance so that our neuroadaptations hop on the pleasure side and so that we can reset our hedonic point, our our joy set point, slightly to the side of pleasure as part of our upregulating healing endogenous um, mechanisms. Mm. hope that made sense. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. Now, now you spoke just there in, you know, highly specific uh, technical and uh, theoretical terms, medical terms, and and, uh, you do that so well in the book. But what really I th- what endeared the book to me so much, I, I just absolutely loved it, was that it has a strong narrative drive. You tell plenty of stories. And uh, what I think is most admirable is you're not just one of those authors who tells embarrassing stories about other people. You kind of <laughs> launch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you launch with a, a somewhat embarrassing story about yourself. Yeah. Uh, have you always been capable of that level of vulnerability or did that skill evolve as part of your study and growth in the field? Oh my goodness. I love that question. And nobody's ever asked it in quite that way. And the answer is absolutely that I learned that from my patients, my patients with addiction and recovery. They taught Mm -hmm. me the value of honesty, of intimate disclosure when it comes from a place of vulnerability Um, they taught me that I learned that from my patients and so many, so I, I think that, you know, much of the wisdom such as I might may have in my life now, uh, a lot of it comes from my patients in recovery. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful for the lessons they've taught me. Mm. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, you were vulnerable in the book about your own, you know, practices that took off with you a little bit. And as a professional, a psychiatrist, um, were you aware as you were immersing yourself more and more into your reading habits and things like that, that, um, that this was actually happening or were you as good as the rest of us at self-delusion? Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, just in total. It's funny. So, so what happened just to clarify for listeners is that, um, uh, 
I sort of, in, oddly, in middle age for the first time, discovered romance mm-hmm. novels. Somebody introduced me to the Twilight Saga. And for mm-hmm. whatever reason, it was just the perfect drug for me at the perfect time in mm-hmm. my life. And I really just got transported by it. And it felt so good. Um, and I just went down this road of getting totally hooked on romance novels. And over time, just like with any addiction, I found I needed more and more of my drug to get the same effect and also more potent forms. So I started mm-hmm. progressing to more graphic erotica and ultimately ended up reading, you know, the kinds of uh, sort of socially sanctioned pornography for women that is not really consistent with my values or how I wanted to spend my time. And one of the most interesting aspects of it, in retrospect, of course, was that um, the rest of my life seemed impoverished. I, I started to think, oh, gee, you know, my husband's not that great. I, I was sort of bored with my profession. Uh, I was not interested in spending time with my kids. And, and I really thought that that was inherently a problem with my life. Mm-hmm. But it was really only when I got out of that you know, escapist um, addiction um, in fantasy that I realized, oh, no, that was my brain had really become hijacked by this highly rewarding behavior that then subsequently sent me in a dopamine deficit state when I wasn't reading and made everything else seem dull. And that was really a huge eye-opener. And and I will just, to answer your question in this long-winded way, I didn't see it as it was happening. What I would do is I would occasionally joke about it, like I would trivialize it. And to Mm -hmm. be fair, you know, I, I didn't get addicted to the point where some of my patients who have life-threatening addiction, it never got mm-hmm. that bad. But but trivializing it and joking about it, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, it was up till two in the morning, ha, 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 oh, I can't believe I'm mm-hmm. reading, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, what was kind of a way to normalize it and make it okay and be like, oh, that couldn't possibly really be a problem. Mm-hmm. And it was really only when I was in a role play with a student and I had to be the patient and I talked to, had to talk about a habit I wanted to change. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm up late often uh, reading. I didn't specify mm-hmm. what I was reading. But mm-hmm. the next day I couldn't stop thinking about it. So it was, you know, again, that that moment of articulating to another human being what I was actually doing with my time that brought it into a relief in a way I honestly hadn't seen it before. I really was in denial. Mm -hmm. Wow. 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 So I wonder if you can help now kind of push ahead, push uh, our listeners ahead, carry us uh, uh, in the direction of practical steps that we can take once we recognize Hey, this is going nuts, and I'm I, perhaps I'm making myself miserable. Perhaps the relief I'm experiencing is merely dealing with the symptoms created by the behavior. Right. Uh, right. Um, so, how do I begin to counter that? You you have a few suggested strategies in the book. I wonder if you can briefly break those down for us. Sure. I think you know. First of all, keeping the pleasure pain balance in mind. And keeping mm-hmm. that awareness of how dopamine works and, and how pleasure and pain are opposite sides of that balance, um, including how, you know, there's a cost uh, to every pleasure and that that cost is pain, however transient. Um, and then really the first thing I recommend, and I do this in my clinical practice, I, I did it for myself with romance novels, I recommend it to my readers, is to take a 30-day abstinence trial or dopamine fast from whatever your drug of choice is. Now, obviously, that would not be something that somebody would do if they were going to go into life-threatening withdrawal from alcohol Mm -hmm. 
or benzos or opioids. And that would not be appropriate for somebody with such a severe addiction that they just simply couldn't stop on their own. For those individuals, obviously a higher level of care is indicated. But for somebody who's kind of wondering if they're addicted or who knows they're addicted and wants to stop the behavior and feels that they could potentially do it on their own, a first-line intervention is this 30-day dopamine fast. And it has a lot of utility in the following ways. Most people can wrap their heads around stopping something for 30 days. If I say to my patient, you need to never drink again in your life, that is not going to happen. I'm not going to get any buy-in. But I say, hey, could you try an experiment? Could you stop drinking for 30 days? And I really do introduce it as an experiment, an opportunity for data gathering. And I warn folks that in the first two weeks, they will feel worse before they feel better. And this is really, really important because if I don't tell patients this, then they feel horrible. Why? Because their pleasure pain balance tilts to the side of pain. They're more anxious. They're more irritable, more, they're more depressed. And they think to myself themselves, Dr. Lemke was wrong. I need to smoke cannabis every night in order to be able to relax, to go to sleep. But if I warn them and I say, you know what, when you first stop smoking cannabis, you are not going to sleep at night. You're going to have some really rough nights. You're going to be more anxious. You're going to be more depressed. But it's time limited because at this point, the cannabis is merely medicating withdrawal from your last dose. It's not really Mm -hmm. treating an underlying anxiety, depression, or insomnia disorder. So I said, believe me, take that leap of faith. And if you can get through those first two weeks, by weeks three or four, I swear to you, those gremlins will hop off. You'll start upregulating your own endocannabinoid, endo-opioid, dopamine systems, and you will start to feel better. And about 80% of patients who can do this experiment come back and do genuinely feel better. Why? Why? Because now they've restored homeostasis. They're able to take pleasure in other more modest or natural rewards, food, clothing, shelter, a good conversation. But also very importantly, they're able to look back and see with much more clarity the true impact of their substance use on their lives, which is really hard to do when we're chasing dopamine. And that has to do Mm -hmm. with that denial and that split brain happened to me too. I really didn't see the impact of my romance reading on my ability to be a good spouse, mother, and doctor until I stopped and looked back. So that's essentially the first exercise. Mm-hmm. And you know, what I say to patients, if you're, if you're you know, willing to commit to that goal and you're not able to stick to it, that's also really important data for us, right? That tells us that maybe this is not as much in your control as you thought. Or if you are able to commit to this and, and 30 days from now, you still feel as lousy as you do now, really important data for us, right? That tells us that, you know, you have a severe underlying, um, you know, mental illness that we also need to target. So that's kind of the first orientation and approach. Yeah. And then from there, we just talk about next steps. You know, do what do you, if it went well and patients feel better and they almost always do feel better, do you want to continue to abstain? How are we going to do that? What barriers can we put in place to help you with abstinence? Or if, do you want to go back to using in moderation? Okay. If you want to use in moderation, what is that going to look like? And it's really important to get specific here. What are you going to use? When are you going to use it? How are you going to use it? What, it, what are the limits? What are the situations? Again, talking about what I call self-binding strategies, what barriers can you put in place to make sure that you can stay within those limits? Mm. Mm. 
Dr. Lemke, what is or is there a relationship between shame and dopamine? Yeah, so this is um, one of the things that, you know, I've thought a lot about in the past 25 years is the role of shame in recovery, but also in our lives. Mm -hmm. And of course, we hear a lot now about stigma and shame and how debilitating it is and how it can drive people to continue to use and also prevent people from accessing treatment. And all of that is totally legit and Mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. But I also think that shame has a very a pro-social positive role in recovery. If we didn't feel shame about the things that we do in our addiction, we probably wouldn't be motivated to get into recovery. And so I think it's very important for us and also for mental health care providers to sort of acknowledge the positive and potential healing role of shame in our lives. It doesn't negate the fact that a person has a disease and that that is the disease of addiction. Mm-hmm. It, doesn't, it doesn't somehow, you know, mean that we should shun that person, you know, quite the opposite. You know, we need mm-hmm. to make treatment, we need to destigmatize it, we need to make it accessible. But it does mean that we, we need to validate the, the, the bad things that we do as a result of our addiction. You can both be addicted and do wrong things. Um, mm-hmm. as a result of your addiction or when you're in addiction. And I think owning that and working through that is also a really mm-hmm. important part of getting into recovery because shame is is probably the most pro-social, potentially most pro-social emotion that we have. I mean, what is shame? Shame is what we feel when other people tell us, hey, you broke social norms, you know, you broke the rules, you, you deviated from our group expectations. And, you know, adhering to social norms and those group expectations are fundamental to creating and maintaining cohesion in social groups. So shame is this super powerful emotion that keeps people adhering to social norms for good and for bad. And I will be the first to acknowledge that there are toxic groups and that adhering to those social norms is not healthy. But if you're in a healthy group, and especially if you're in recovery and you're in a pro-recovery group, one of the ways that those groups work and, and that basically are effective is that they leverage a certain degree of shame um, so that people don't break those those social norms. But importantly, in those recovery groups that are healthy, when people do break social norms and do experience shame, those groups provide a pathway for redemption, a way to right. bring yourself back into the fold. And that's really, really important because if we just if those groups would just shun people who break the <laughs> rules, you know there would be nobody left. Um, so obviously mm-hmm. there have to be ways, And I think that's true in families too, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, so as parents, we can't just go around validating every last thing our kid does and says so that we can bolster their self-esteem. That's not healthy for kids. You know, Mm -hmm. that doesn't give them a realistic perception of themselves in the world. We have to reflect back to them what is real and true, but in an empathic, loving way. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Do you think we are a culture that doesn't, maybe know how to be sad or how to grieve or how to handle negative emotion. And that's part of this big uh, drive or is it the result of this, this uh, dopamine saturated culture? Yeah. So I think those are concurrent and parallel phenomenon. I don't think one preceded the other, but they certainly happened in parallel 
that being our increasing access to all kinds of feel-good drugs and behaviors, at the same time that our culture evolved this pervasive narrative that you should feel good all the time. And if you don't feel good, something's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it's it's almost like it's hard to, you want to have the right to be unhappy, right? Like, do I have the right to be unhappy? Is it okay mm-hmm. if I'm anxious yeah. and sad and grumpy? Mm-hmm. I remember, I'll never forget, I had a patient who'd struggled with depression his whole life. And then he came to see me and he said, you know, Dr. Lemke, I, I'm still sad, but for the first time, I don't feel guilty about feeling sad. And I thought that was great because what's Mm -hmm. happened is now, like most of us feel some degree of anxiety and dysphoria in our waking hours, but we also, a lot of us feel guilty about feeling that way. Oh, I should... I should somehow improve myself for my life. I mean, you don't want to be toxic and spread your sadness to others. It's not like that. Mm-hmm. But it's okay to be, like, not happy. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know how good that is to hear. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah, and that's one of the real, And that's one of the reasons I wanted to be self-disclosing in the book, because I think you read some – I've read so many doctor-authored books where it just seems like the doctors have it all together. Mm-hmm. So I just want to yeah. be like, no, you know, like we're human. I'm certainly very human, very flawed. I struggle every day. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering how you have experienced, were there any surprises, have there been any surprises for you in uh, the reactions that the book has received and you have received in, uh, as your audience has expanded, the media attention, the conversations you find yourself in, how, how has that been for you since the book came out? It's still selling very strongly. And I can mm-hmm. imagine you find yourself daily in all kinds of conversations. Yeah. Anything surprising there? Well, I mean, the first big surprise is that people are even reading it. Um, mm-hmm. and <laughs> that's a surprise, you know, because it was, I mean, basically the message of the book is avoid pleasure and seek out, you know, pain, friction, challenges. <laughs> um, you know, you, yeah. That's not something you would think would be a super popular message. Uh-huh. So I'm, yeah. I'm gratified and surprised that, that it's resonating for people. Um, and I think it's doing so because so many of us are, are at this tipping point in our lives where we have so much and yet we're not happy and kind of wondering, God, what, what's going on? You know, and I've, I've been psychotherapized and I've taken psychiatric meds and I'm, you know, I'm in, I've done it all. Right. So Mm -hmm. kind of what we're, yeah, gee, what, what, what what's going on here? So I think that, that that's just the fact that it's resonated has been wonderful and surprising. Um, the fact that it's being translated into 20 languages, 20 and counting wow. is amazing to me. Places like Vietnam, uh, Korea, mm. um, all over South America, Europe. That's been really a surprise that people, mm-hmm. Eastern Eastern Europe, um, mm. China. Yeah, really shocking and wonderful. But it does tell me, again, like so many shifts in culture and in society there's usually, it's a groundswell and we're all kind of having the same ideas, you know, at roughly mm-hmm, the same mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And then there's like this, this shift where, and so I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that we're at the beginning of thinking about pleasure and pain in our lives in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a random question, Dr. Great. Does the brain know the difference between 
a chocolate cake, an orgasm, and a shot of whiskey? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, great question. So the, 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 one of the interesting things is that all rewards work on the same common final pathway. Mm-hmm. And the currency for all rewards is dopamine, as far as we know, to varying mm-hmm. degrees. They work in different ways to get there. So for example, alcohol mainly works on our endogenous opioid system. Uh, chocolate might well work on the endogenous opioid system as well. Um, you know, sex or orgasm is a flooding of many different neurotransmitters, norepinephrine, serotonin, mm-hmm. uh, dopamine, kind of all at once. Mm-hmm. So um, they're all kind of ultimately working in the same way. Mm-hmm. But it's important to keep in mind this concept of drug of choice, which is to say our brains are all slightly different. And so what tips your balance to the side of pleasure might not tip my balance or might not tip it quite as much. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really relevant for the modern age because, you know, 150, 200 years ago, really there were a limited number of readily available intoxicants. There was alcohol, there was nicotine. Um, And, you know, if you were really lucky, you could get some opioids. Um, You know, there was food, of course, but you know, it wasn't enriched with salt, fat, and sugar mm. the way it was. Now mm. it wasn't mass produced. You couldn't, you could get potatoes, you couldn't get potato chips. Um, right. You know, and when it came to sex, I mean, you know, there were very strict mores, you know, to get uh, pornography. I mean, you had to like, you know, really, really work hard to go mm-hmm. down to, you know, some sketch part of town and look through. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you couldn't just get that stuff. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, what's different now, of course, is the incredible ubiquity the incredible potency that technology has allowed for, um, mm-hmm. which I think is, is, and then of course the novelty. So which gets back to this drug of choice thing, you know what now there's almost a drug for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. So right. even if you're relatively immune to alcohol or cannabis or nicotine, probably there's something online for you, maybe video games, maybe online pornography, maybe, maybe social media, So I do think that we're all much more vulnerable to the problem of addiction than ever before. And I do think that's partially why this, you know, this kind of messaging is resonating and people are more interested in addiction than they, than they were even 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There has, I, I sense that the reluctance to admit the reality of process addictions and somehow put those in a different moral category is fading. I think we're waking up to the realization that that uh, an activity or behavior can become as compulsive and compelling as, as any substance. You agree? Yes, I yeah. do. And I would say one of the big gambles I took in my book was opening with the, the patient story um, of a patient with severe sex addiction. And my, right. you know, my editors, they're like, oh, do you really want to start with this? And this may turn off a bunch of readers. And I said, you know what? I know this is a risk, but this is so important. This is yeah. a huge, huge problem. And mm-hmm. we are not talking about this problem the way that we need to. Online pornography, sex addiction, compulsive masturbation, this is a huge and growing problem. We need to talk about this. And I, I get getting back to your question about surprises. I certainly have had people react negatively to the book because of uh, opening with that. But I've had mm-hmm. many, many more people reach out to me and say, "Thank you so much for talking about this. I have felt so alone uh, and yeah. so isolated in in this problem." So I'm really glad, in retrospect, mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, that I did. Although again, it does, it is, it's a bit of a shocker to open with that. And, and some people, you know, probably won't read the book because of it. But it's interesting. Go ahead, Nate. Let me just say as a sex addict in recovery, I just personally, I want to say thank you. Oh, thank you. That, that means yeah. a lot to me. Thank you so much. Yeah. 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 And I was going to say the story that you led with, uh, w- that you're referring to, while to some people probably could sound extreme, um, for people suffering, it isn't. Right. You know? I know. And that's what I said to my editor, you know, because they were like, really, you want to start with that? I said, you know what? This is happening everywhere. I mean, I hear this all the time. This is this is not really that weird, you know. And then I and then in sharing my own compulsive, you know, consumption of erotica, I was really trying to say, like, look at this could happen to anybody. I mean, what my mm-hmm. patient, that could have been me, you know. This yeah. is we, we really need to talk about this. These are wonderful people. These are not, you know, horrible people who are doing like these outrageous things. This is you and me. Right. And this is um, it's such a um, interesting thing now where it seems that the culture is finally getting to a point where uh, everybody at least identifies somehow with a behavior or a, a compulsion yeah. that they maybe don't want to have in their lives. Now, maybe not That's to right. the degrees that all of us have experienced in some ways, but it's seeming less and less moralized. And for those of us, Nate, Nate and I come from the, we, we're in the Bible belt, so to speak, even though it's unbuckling, um, <laughs> we're in uh, the greater, <laughs> the greater Nashville area. And uh, there's a lot of moralizing and spiritualizing of, uh, quote, bad behavior. Mm. And it's very common here for, and probably other places as well, for people to um, approach that from a moral dilemma, from a moral standpoint, a moralizing, you know, sin, whatever that is, and, uh, you know, things like that. So I love that your book and books like yours are are actually giving us some physiology to understand what's going on with this so that it's Mm -hmm. not just uh, it's it's more more data to point to to say this is not just me, you know, being bad, quote unquote, you know, Yeah. I mean, that's right. It's, this is, we, we, you know, our brains evolved over millions of years to approach pleasure and avoid pain. What we have now is these highly potent drugs and behaviors that are hijacking that neural circuitry. This is good people and bad drugs. This is not bad Mm -hmm. people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Well, the book again is Dopamine Nation. By the way, thank you for, uh, uh, narrating the book yourself, the audio book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I had a long road trip with a good friend and it was, came at just the right time. We popped it in Uh, beautiful job in the audio books. So for those of us who, for those of our listeners who prefer to listen, that's available. Uh, you can get it on Kindle. You can buy it most at fine bookstores everywhere. Uh, are there other resources that you would like to point our listeners to before we let you go? I think that's great. You know, um, I don't, I'm not on social media, so um, I don't have other kinds of links, but yeah, I think knowing that there's an audible version of the book for people who'd rather listen. um, Yeah. Thank you. You're not on social media and still you're managing to have uh, an impact in the world. How could that possibly be? (laughs) You could have a career. Good question. (laughs) Yeah. It's It's my social media deficit disorder. 
<laughs> I love it. Yeah, I love that's, it. that's good. Um, well, Dr. Lemke, thank you for so much of your work and your time and your generosity to join us today. And um, the, the book is, I mean, I can't highlight enough how helpful it was to me just to uh, hear these great examples and these, and these great, um, ex- well, examples that you gave with respect to science and uh, bringing real people into the equation and real stories. And uh, it was relatable on more levels than I probably wanted it to be. So <laughs> thank you for that. Oh, you're very welcome. My pleasure. All right. Well, listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Um, I'm Nate. I'm kind of geeking out. Um, <laughs> I know. I a little bit. Yeah. 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 This is, you know, in, in my world, this is sort of like, you know, I don't know, meeting, uh, you know, Lady Gaga or something. But uh, this is this was really great for me because, like I said, I was really impacted by Dr. Limke's book and I was impacted by her uh, interview that I had heard uh, previously mm-hmm. with uh, NPR and then also, you know, her um, contributions to the social dilemma documentary, yeah, 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 uh, which yeah. I also, you know, devoured. And it, it just, uh, I have so much respect for people who are medically and chemically uh, drawing, drawing data out for us to see that there is so much more going on in the addictive mind, in the impulse compulsive behaviors that we do, uh, than just trying to learn to be better, you know, um, or trying to not do something. Um, you know, that, that, you know, why do I feel like shit when I'm not doing the thing that I don't want to do? And, you know, her book speaks to that directly. And I, and I think that is so helpful to people to understand. So I'm, I'm still kind of (laughs) geeking. Yeah. Oh boy. And Hey, but by the way, great job taking the initiative and shooting off an email and just taking a flyer and, and, uh, getting her to come on the show. Well, here's what I'm learning, uh, Nate, yeah. about being our official uh, scheduler production uh, executive that I am. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in this two-man, three-man operation that we're doing. Don't, for, don't <laughs> yeah, forget yeah, Rex. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. But uh, I'm learning that, um, first of all, you can always ask. And you'll yeah. either not get a reply or you'll get a polite turn down or you'll get a maybe or you'll get somebody that goes, I'd love to do this. When can when can we do it? And yeah, yeah. uh the, but the great thing is, is everybody who is in this field, I think, who writes mm-hmm. about it, who researches it, who goes and works with people who are struggling, everybody's passionate about what they do and they love to talk yes. about it. They love yeah, to yeah, share yeah. about it. And so yeah. that's made it a lot easier to um, procure guests because I'm not looking at it from a right. standpoint of, um, well, you know, they're too, they're too well known. They're not going to come on here. They're too, yeah. you know, because first of all, I think we're doing better in our little yeah. uh, pursuits and ratings and rankings. Yeah. Uh, people are coming to us, which is wonderful. I'm not trying to downplay us, but I'm just saying, I, 
I feel like when people are passionate about what they do, they look for opportunities to talk about it. So yeah, um, yeah. I'm learning to just uh, ask and give people an opportunity to say no. <laughs> That's fair. Okay. All right. Well, uh, what is, uh, is there something that our listeners could do if they're stuck and uh, they're, you know, they're not within uh, hailing distance or driving distance of a therapist they feel comfortable with, uh, but they'd like to maybe before the day is over, <laughs> take a practical step in the direction of health. Do you I have a suggestion for something might, they might do? They might have a resource that we know about. Yeah. Thank you for the underhanded pitch for that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and that would be BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com, one of our, our, well, our big only sponsor of the Positive yeah. Sobriety Podcast. But BetterHelp.com is a place where you can go get a licensed therapist, get a private consultation, and then have private sessions just like you would any traditional therapy situation. Uh, but they will deal with your uh, issues with anxiety, with um your, your fears, your depression, your helping you assess where you are and what you need to do to be unstuck. And if you'll sign on with betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety, uh, it will give you a discount on your subscription and it will also give us an opportunity to know these resources are benefiting you. But um, betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety and uh, take this opportunity to uh, create your own disruption <laughs> and I love start it. on the path of change. Okay. Well, I guess that wraps it for this week, David. One, uh, let us say, as we always do, we love to hear from listeners, love your suggestions, love your feedback. You can reach us always at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Well, until next week, then I'm Nate. I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer, Rex Schnelli. Music by Rex Schnelli. Theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett. Uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 